All right, welcome to another episode of Out the Rabbit Hole here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. We're also streaming at KUCI.org. I'm Robert Larson. Back from my little mini vacation, took last week off. Thank you, Cynthia, for filling in for me. I heard you played some great music. I wish I actually could have been listening, but I was at a wonderful event, the uh, Cracker Second annual Cracker and Camper Van Beethoven Campout out at Pioneer Town and had a wonderful time. Thank you to everybody who helped make it so. So, uh, yes, this is the September 15th, 2006 edition of Out the Rabbit Hole. It's uh, 4.05 on the clock here. Those of you who have not yet seen the movie is Scanner Darkly. I urge you to check it out. I think it's uh, still in some theaters, and it should be on DVD soon. So uh, one way or another, you should be able to check it out. Uh, today, we're going to be discussing this powerful film, its warnings related to our present situation, and the genius behind the original book. That would be Philip K. Dick. My special guest today is author, screenwriter, film critic, literary consultant, journalist, writing teacher, and Philip K. Dick aficionado, Brad Schreiber. Brad has written a few wonderful books of his own and has since 1995 been writing the excellent media and politics column Development Hell that appears in Entertainment Today. In a moment, we'll be discussing the dark warnings about an emerging super-surveillance police state and notions about consciousness, reality, and identity that are in A Scanner Darkly and many other places in Philip K. Dick's work, and how America seems to be on a collision course with that reality. Before we get started with Brad, of course, I'll remind you that the opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the KUCI staff or management or the UC Board of Regents. Brad, you with us? Hi, nice to be with you. How are you, Robert? I'm great. It's good to have you. Uh, always great talking to you. Uh, you were on my old program, Cartoon Pleroma, five, six years ago, and uh, we had a great conversation. I remember Paul Williams was on that uh, day, and we were talking about Phil and consciousness and paranoia. Yeah, and here we are again. Yeah, except I think we all deserve to be a little more paranoid than we were on Cartoon Pleroma. Yeah, I think we were talking then about the, all of this in a speculative way, and now here it is, hmm, that speculation seems to be merging with this uh, actual reality where <laughs> we've fallen down into. <laughs> yeah, out of the rabbit hole, but into what is my next question, <laughs> you know? Well, yeah, we're in some sort of rabbit hole. Okay, before we get into all this, Brad, I want to get a little bit of business out of the way, because I know you, you're doing a lot of work, and you... Uh, I admire you for making a living as a writer, and I know so many people who uh, sort of dabble at it, and you go uh, full full bore with it. And you've got a uh, new book out, so let's mention that before yeah, we get going. Yeah, sort of sum up what I'm doing, and and then we can kind of talk about you know the dark premise that is America these days. <laughs> um, just on a lighter note, I have a book that just came out called "Stop the Show." Subtitle is A History of Insane Incidents and Absurd Accidents in the Theater. Um, Thunder's Mouth at Avalon in New York has put it out this last week. And it's the only book completely comprised of everything that has ever gone wrong during live theater in the last 100 years or so. 
That's in the U.S. <laughs> and Canada and the U.K. I have a couple of European stories. And um, this was an idea of mine maybe 25 years ago in San Francisco when I saw a friend of mine in a farce on stage, and he was wearing an S&M outfit, <laughs> and one of his testicles popped out of his leather bikini brief and started swinging around. And he didn't understand. Talk about the nature of consciousness. I'm going to relate everything to PKD in America that I talk about here. Okay. Talk about the nature of consciousness. He did not know in that moment, because of the adrenaline surging through his system on stage, that he was indecently exposed. <laughs> so as he's jumping around, the audience is howling. And he must have been thinking, oh, I'm really quite good tonight. I'm <laughs> slaying them. And so he jumped around more, and it created a feedback loop of, of uh, laughter and response. The more he jumped, the more people laughed. Eventually, he went off stage for an exit, and when he came back, he was properly attired. So I had this interesting mixture of revulsion and hilarity in seeing this happen to my friend Cyril. And I was so fascinated by that mixture of both laughter and horror that I started telling friends in the theater about the incident, and they would tell me, oh, that's nothing. Let me tell you what happened to me. <laughs> and this went on, you know, I worked in the theater, you know, since I was in college. Uh, so it's almost like a parlor game. I've been talking to people saying, well, what's the th worst thing you ever saw happen on stage? And then last year I was in an editor's office in New York, and it just popped out of my mouth as an idea for a book. I didn't expect it to go anywhere, and he said, I love it. Get me a book proposal. And so Stop the Show is now out in the stores and Amazon and uh, you know, we've got, we've got Southern California stories um, that are hilarious and also frightening. You know, not all of them are, are embarrassing, funny stories. Um, at the Odyssey Theater in West Los Angeles, uh, Lori O'Brien, great actress, was in Mary Barnes, which, who was a historical character who was a schizophrenic. And the famous Scottish um, psychoanalyst R.D. Lang treated her. And there's a scene where she rolls around on the floor. Well, on stage, she accidentally knocked a wine bottle on the floor. It shattered. And she went ahead with the blocking in the play and rolled on stage, and she was bleeding profusely. And they said, you can't go on. She said, hey, listen, the show must go on. <laughs> and they patched her up, and she went out there. And the lighting designer of that show, Kathy O'Donoghue, told me, she's the one who gave me the story, she said that weeks later, a piece of glass worked its way out of Laurie O'Brien's thigh. That kind of dedication to go on because there is a house full of people expecting live theater is what really impresses me about all these stories I've gathered, whether they're funny or shocking. Yeah, yeah, that would be a great one for somebody who's, who's teaching acting or something and trying to make the point about the show must go on. And, uh, yeah, that's uh, so that's uh, – let's uh, – let me get that correct. The Stop the Show, A History of Insane Incidents and Absurd Accidents in the Theater. That's exactly right. So that's, that's my fourth book. That just came out. And as you know, Robert, from our previous discussions, um, one of my previous books, Death in Paradise, an illustrated history of the Los Angeles County Department of Coroner, the only authorized history of the coroner, <laughs> including true cases of accidental death, murder, and suicide throughout the 20th century in Hollywood, uh, that came out in 98, and then I think 2001 in paper. So that's a TV show. I created a TV show, which is on Court TV, called North Mission Road. 
and I think it's on right now Monday nights, and uh, that's still running, so um, that helps pay the rent and keep my fat face fed. <laughs> and they do a very good job of it, I must say. In television, oftentimes the recreations of cases look very cheesy, and it's very well produced, and uh, you know, proud to say that I had a hand in bringing it to TV. So um, that, and as you know, Storytech uh, Literary Consulting, I'm a consultant, and you mentioned Development Hell. Well, I'm now in year 11 of writing Development Hell. So that's kind of a, a quick thumbnail of uh, recent activities. Yeah, so uh, Storytech, and I think as we go along this afternoon, people are going to understand uh, about your expertise uh, of and uh, about and understanding of writing. So uh, you actually uh, provide that service for people. So how do if people are interested, how do they... Well, yeah, Chris Vogler, who wrote The Writer's Journey, which is one of the best-selling uh, books on story structure in the world, and it's been translated into, I don't know, maybe a dozen or so languages, um, Chris uh, hired me to run his company because he's working at Paramount now, and contractually he cannot do any other consulting. But all, all these people are regularly saying, hey, you know, we know your book. Will you read my screenplay? Will you read my book? Um, will you look at uh, this work? and give me feedback. And so I run the company, and uh, there's a website at thewritersjourney.com, no apostrophe, thewritersjourney.com, which is, of course, the name of his book, too. And that's been going on since 99, Robert, and it, it's, it's a great pleasure, not, not just because it provides me an income, and not only because I think Chris is a remarkable guy and a brilliant guy, but I get to consult with work around the world. It's not just people in America. I've consulted with people in Mexico and, and in Europe. And um, um, it's interesting to see how they structure stories and how their own cultures form their sense of storytelling. And I'm a person who's very fascinated to, to read not only material that's generated from our country, but to see foreign films and, and read translated works of people from other countries and, and kind of understand what they feel is a compelling story and what are interesting characters. And oftentimes it's very different from the way we here in North America structure stories. Yeah, yeah, that must be uh, rewarding work. And the uh, web address again? Um, it's thewritersjourney.com. Okay. Storytech Literary Consulting. All right, so if you are a writer and uh, feel a little stuck and could use a little uh, guidance, uh, it's a place to go. So, uh, yeah, let, let's get into this Scanner Darkly, Philip K. Dick stuff, the movie. It's still out in some theaters, isn't it? Um, I think it is, although we might be in that kind of weird <laughs> gray region between theatrical release and DVD release. But as you know, um, that window is narrowing more and more, thanks to people like uh, Steven Soderbergh, who, uh, you know, likes to put out movies now that uh, have theatrical release and DVD release at the same time. Yeah, um, yeah. Which is interesting. Uh, you know, a lot of people say you, you shouldn't beat up on them and you shouldn't feel sorry for the studios because the future of, uh, you know, film distribution is going to be moving more and more toward the net and downloads. And of course, the technology is not quite there yet, but that's what people seem to be saying. Um, I, of course, um, like you, have been a longtime fan of the work of Philip K. Dick. So um, 
I love the Scanner Darkly as a book itself, and when I heard that Richard Linklater was going to do a movie version of it, I was extremely excited, not only because I know that Linklater was uh, and is a fan of Phil's work, but because he was going to use that same type of technique, that interpolated uh, rotoscoping that he used on Waking Life. Yeah. And I thought to myself, uh, I was so anxious to see it, um, I thought to myself, this, this adds a whole other dimension because there, it's, it's almost hard to do justice to Phil's work um, in live action. Um, you know, certainly Blade Runner, you know, was an expensive production, and Ridley Scott clearly is a visionary director and brought a great deal to it. And, uh, you know, if you've read uh, any of the books about the making of it, um, you understand that he was a complete perfectionist. But there was there's something, to my mind, about A Scanner Darkly, that sense of paranoia and that omnipresent feeling of the state, you know, you're beholden to the state. Um, it, you know, it's easy to use the term police state, but if you don't want to use that, that's, that heightened sense of security that we definitely are in now in America is part and parcel of a scanner darkly. Then you add to it all these characters, Bob Arctor, you know, the split personality, you know, uh, stoner slash, uh, you know, drug agent, <laughs> and all the people around him, and these stoned-out ramblings. Yeah. So you've got, on one hand, a world that's extremely dark and imposing, and the other hand, you've got one that's very comical and surreal and certainly connected to hallucinations. And so I thought, yes, using animation could be the ideal way to do this movie. It, it has a sense of reality because, it's, in a sense, rotoscoping is an outlining of human beings and a coloring in of them. Right. It's but not it's, just animation. It's this. It sort of straddles the fence. Yeah. It's it's kind of a middle ground between live action and animation, and it's it's not so estranged as it were that it seems comical. Um, you know, the way you might see a cartoon character who has odd facial expressions and makes you laugh, and then sort of undercuts the seriousness of the work. Yet at the same time, the rotoscoping. Um, is so unique that um, you feel like you're in an alternate world, which is, you know, perfectly in line with what Phil is all about in terms of his writing. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. When I first heard that it was going to be linked later doing the interpolated rotoscoping, I thought, yeah, that that is that's it, because it, it straddles the fence between live action and animation. It's like... If you knew nothing about it and you just walked in and saw the movie, you would be like, "What the hell's going on? Am I watching animation or live action?" And and but see, that's the whole thing with Phil's writing is like you're always saying, "What the hell's going on? Am I in a dream or am I awake? Am I tripping or am right. I in normal consciousness? Am I alive or am I dead?" Mm-hmm. And so yeah, I just uh, thought, okay, this has got to work, and and it really did, and. Do you know a little bit more about the technique of interpolated rotoscoping? I don't even know that much about it. Yeah, interpolated rotoscoping. Well, rotoscoping is actually not new. In fact, my understanding of it is it it goes back to, uh, you know, Gertie the Dinosaur, Windsor McKay, one of the earliest animators, American animators, 
I believe he goes back to the 1910s and 20s. Um, also, I, I know that um, there were a lot of shorts, jazz music shorts that were made in the 30s, and I believe that there was a Cab Calloway rotoscoped. Um, it might have been St. James Infirmary or another song of his. I don't re- recall which. So, you know, the technique of, rot- of rotoscoping itself uh, goes back quite a way. And then, of course, the work of Ralph Bakshi in animation, you know, with, um, you know, heavy traffic and all of those other uh, movies. Wizards is another one that used rotoscoping, I think, in a very interesting way. That's been around a while. Um, this requires scores and scores of people to take the film footage and color it in. And it's, it's my understanding that um, it is extremely time-consuming, like all animation. Mm-hmm. Uh, interestingly enough, I have a friend, Rick Sayer, who works at Pixar Animation in Northern California. And he's not a big fan of it. He's more a CGI guy. Um, and, you know, he was just down in Southern California recently. We had a long talk about this. And he was bashing it, saying, well, you can see that there are, are errors in the way that they drew it and sort of the colors extend out from <laughs> the objects. And, you know, much like a child would color in outside of an object <laughs> in a coloring book. He was complaining about the technique being sloppy and he, in fact, contends that Linkletter and his group on the Scanner Darkly uh, actually did some errors, that they had what I like to refer to in the artistic process as happy accidents, <laughs> that they did things in a scanner that weren't supposed to be there, and they just left it in. Uh-huh. Well, that may well be true, and I can't argue with that, but because of the nature of Phil's work, it's so complex, and because this work is so much about paranoia consciousness, uh, drug-taking, um, and alternate views of, of uh, identity, who someone really is and what they really represent, those sorts of um, marginal artistic errors, and artistic in terms of drawing and coloring, not in artistic choices, it seems to me negligible. It's like, okay, fine. So, you know, they had a bunch of guys working down in Austin, busting their ass, and they slipped a couple of times. I think uh, what I really like about Scanner is that Phil's work um, calls out certain little hallucinations. And it's not overdone in the movie. In other words, an immature filmmaker might say, wow, I've got this really interesting technique, and I've got the the greatest science fiction mind, in some people's opinions, uh, as source. I'm going to go crazy. I'm going to add to it, and I'm going to have all these wild imaginings, and I'm going to have characters turning into all kinds of strange things via hallucinations. And what I really appreciate about Linkletter is his commitment to the material while still making it his own. He didn't really exaggerate the storyline. Yeah, it it was... uh, I was pleasantly surprised on how close it stayed to the book, but at the same time, it was like... Oh yeah, he he realized it's it's 2006 and there's some things going on in America now and we can kind of blend that in just a bit. Yeah. Yeah, and um I encourage your listeners uh well in a way even if it's not in the theaters when it comes out on DVD to rent or buy it, it's the kind of movie that it's well worth seeing more than once and I look forward to that myself. Uh, just as a lot of people would reread Philip K Dick's work. 
And parenthetically, I, I would add, too, that, um, you know, they gave me notes, production notes as a journalist when I went to the screening. And, you know, Linklater worked with two of Phil's daughters and said, you know, here's the script, and what do you think? And what would Phil do? And, it, uh, you know, I want this to honor his work, but, of course, it's my film, too. What do you think about, uh, you know, this structure? And the fact that they totally approved of his work and felt really good about it is the highest testimony, I think. Yeah, yeah, I just... Uh... It, it it really it really moved me and just that I I went in with sort of an expectation of expecting it to be really good I had seen a bit of a preview and I yeah. and I left the theater not let down and just uh, was trying to put myself in a mindset of somebody who didn't know much about Philip K Dick and how they would uh, yeah. feel about it and and it seemed like it 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 would still work but I probably need to talk to more people who are in that category. Yeah, and even, even, I know this is going to sound mean, even Keanu Reeves cannot bring down this movie. <laughs> right, I mean, I he's thought perfectly he... perfectly cast. Yeah. He's a guy who is, like, shut down emotionally because he's losing his mind. And um, I, I always kid around. I say Keanu Reeves' best role was, you know, in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, <laughs> yeah. where he, was, he just seemed like a happy, you know, stoner kind of kid. And um, I think that this is suited very well to his his abilities but even more importantly you have great actors i think robert downey jr clearly is one of the great uh actors um you know in his age range um and there's some very well cast uh, other players you know woody harrelson is very well cast for what he does um rory cochran yeah rory cochran is also a very amusing character in this and people have to go back to the book um the people who surround Bob Arctor are fringe people. They are, you know, in a science fiction epic, they're the rebels trying to fight the, the dark, evil, fascistic forces. But what's so wonderful about it is they're sweet, and they mess up, and they argue, and they wave loaded guns at each other without <laughs> wanting to hurt each other because they're kind of out of it. And, and, and it... What's really interesting about it, of course, you know, uh, you know, Phil talked about those people he loved who died of drug overdoses. Sure. You know, and seeing this movie reaffirms that sense that these people are real outsiders from society at large, that they don't fit in, and that they're not a threat to the state. They're not bad people, regardless of what their habits are in taking drugs, that um, they are in their own subset. And that sense of isolation, that sense of, of surveillance of them, of co-opting them, becomes even more oppressive because you realize that these guys, you know, don't pose any real threat. And, and that kind of leads us to to a discussion, I think, of what's going on in America and how the threat of terrorism, even the definition of what terrorism is, has been used to strip us of civil liberties and is used to minimize political discourse in America, which is very, very wrong. Well, yeah, I think that Phil Dick, uh, in A Scanner Darkly, he... it. it the book, in some measure, was about drugs and drug culture, 
and he saw the the drug war in America at that time was sort of coming together and uh and he he saw that that well yeah you can have these characters that have problems with drugs and and they're sad characters and and uh, at the same time sometimes humorous but as you said not really a threat to the state but yet the state would use the war on drugs as this like trojan horse for a war on civil liberties and now we see the war on terror actually eclipsing and sort of dovetailing with the uh war on drugs as as this cover for the real war on civil liberties yes there's something i want to mention too i i sort of made a list of some of the things that have gone on politically that I think are unconstitutional and impeachable offenses, and I want to get to that. But I also want to say that um, within uh, Phil Dick's uh, A Scanner Darkly, um, there is this interesting note of hope, and it's one I've talked to other people about. Um, you will recall that the drug agents who are using Bob Arctor, I don't want to give too much away for those who haven't read the book or seen the movie, but Bob Arctor, the drug taker slash drug agent, um, part of his brain doesn't recall what the other is doing. And he is being used, in a sense, as an agent to try and bust other people because there is a prevalent drug that is a scourge on society. Now, what's, what's hopeful to me about this rather dark uh, vision is that there are agents within the drug enforcement type agency, who say what we are doing to this individual is wrong. I know it's to achieve a greater end, and that is to control this drug, which is destroying lives. But I think we've gone too far. And there's a moral voice, and what's significant to me, Robert, in that book is there's a moral voice within the agency perpetuating the loss of freedom. And I think what we are seeing now... Um, at this point in the Bush administration, are uh, people in the military who are retiring and then coming out and criticizing Bush and Rumsfeld and others for the way that they have, um, you know, uh, exploited the quote-unquote terrorism issue, the way that the Iraq war has been conducted, the way, by the way, that the Taliban, the Taliban are as powerful as before we went into Afghanistan. It's as if we went in, had to make some moral point, left, and now the people in Afghanistan are suffering as much as they were before. The Taliban have completely come back. And um, the opium uh, crop is as big as ever, and uh, yeah, and that's a little uh, <laughs> tie in there to the scanner darkly, too. Uh, yeah, I don't want to give too much away, but uh, yeah, so, and, and yesterday we had. Uh, uh, some of the uh, senators, uh, Republican senators in the Judiciary Committee, uh, Judiciary Committee, yeah. bucking uh, the Bush administration on their uh, pro-torture, anti-trial uh, 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 treatment of, yeah. of detainees. And uh, you had John McCain and, and even Colin Powell had something to say against the administration policy. So, yeah, I agree with your point there. Yeah, it, it's a cumulative thing. It's not only that we have midterm elections, but uh, the American people are looking at, you know, the thousands of people who have died who are American service people. Uh, They've looked at the lack of results, 
And this is where language also comes in. Obviously, everybody always talks about, um, you know, 1984 and George Orwell, who was so important in talking about Newspeak. I feel that Phil's work uh, uh, approaches that, too. Um, that language can undercut the ability to make a rational argument. If you use emotional language, or if you take a term that we don't use anymore, um, say, for example, shell shock. I know George Carlin had a great bit about shell shock, and then you know it changes from war to war, and then becomes post-traumatic stress disorder. So you're actually getting farther and farther away from words that accurately depict what is going on, these euphemisms. And what that does is it makes it easier to dismiss the reality of what is going on. And I bring this up because I see nowhere in the U.S. media anyone willing to acknowledge, with perhaps a few exceptions, willing to acknowledge what everyone else in the world will easily acknowledge, and that is there is a civil war going on in the country of Iraq. It's not an insurgency. It's not pockets of resistance. It is literally a civil war where dozens of people are killed every day, and in Baghdad itself there are neighborhoods where people are pulled out of their houses and killed because of their religious persuasion. That is not an insurgency. That is a civil war. But if you do not use the term civil war, um, especially if you're in the administration that is perpetrating this action, then it doesn't seem so bad. And if, of course, you control not only access to information, but the language that describes what is going on, then you have even more control of it. And, and I'm at least somewhat pleased to see that people are stepping up, whether it's the right reason or not, they're stepping up and saying, hey, you know what? Enough is enough. We don't see any way out of this. Uh, my, my complaint is, you know, you should have recognized from the beginning that there is no such thing as preemptive war. It's very absurd to me that oh. we are we're going into a military action to prevent a war that has not been declared. It's completely unconstitutional. It never existed before the Bush administration. By our Constitution, it is illegal and an impeachable offense and, as a matter of fact, nobody discusses it. People still use that term. Every time I hear someone say, pre well, you know, it's preemptive war, I said, there is no such thing. It doesn't exist. It didn't <laughs> exist until someone put it down on a piece of paper. Well, you know, I mean, the the Nazis thought they were engaging in preemptive war. They might have had a different term for it. And, well, yeah, you know, it's, <laughs> it's like, You know, whoa. it doesn't mean that we don't love America, and, it, of course, it's a dangerous parallel to to equate um, anyone in the United States with Nazis, and, and I agree that it's unfair. But look, here's a list of things that are illegal, and as far as I understand the Constitution, impeachable. The fact that there is proof in the Downing Street memo that Blair and Bush discussed Iraq before uh, the invasion, okay, that, that proves that there was knowledge of forethought and that this was not quote-unquote, preemptive, or in reaction to, to September 11th. The use of depleted uranium, which is another story that unfortunately gets buried. Depleted uranium, which is a carcinogen, it has never been legalized. Um, Israel has used it. The United States used it in the first Gulf War. 
There are many types of cancer that come from it. Um, according to UN resolutions that we have signed, it is illegal, and yet we we continue to use it. That is an impeachable offense. Um, not just in the world court, which of course you know the U.S. doesn't really care much about. It's an impeachable offense to use a weapon of mass destruction. By the way, that's what depleted uranium is. Um, Preemptive war, extraordinary rendition, the ability to take someone, and because you don't have the laws in America to interrogate them um, using torture or other methods that we don't subscribe to, you simply send them to another country. That is illegal. That is an impeachable offense. Uh, Stop-loss orders. This one's kind of interesting because then you get into military law. Stop-loss orders, of course, being... um, um, the idea that the military didn't have enough people uh, to prosecute what's going on in Iraq, so you sign up for uh, a tour of duty of whatever it is, 12 or 24 months, and when you've served your time, they go, you know what, we're recycling you back in. Well, when someone signs up for the military, it is true that they give up their rights to, as a soldier, as a Marine, etc., to say, you know what, even though I signed up, I don't believe in war, I'm out of here. No, you've given up those rights. However, once you have served your tour of duty, you retain your rights as a citizen. As far as I'm concerned, and as far as I understand the law, those people who were forced to go back into service, either in the National Guard or any branch of the military, forced to go back to Iraq, those people are unconstitutionally being forced to serve this country. That's illegal. Now, as the commander-in-chief, Bush has responsibility. The tricky part is, how do you sue the military? But I want to make mention that in the history of the U.S. military, this has never existed, the idea that you force people to continue. It's like conscription. It's like unforced. It's like forced conscription. Involuntary conscription of someone who has served their duty. Not, and, not and too of course far they off do it. from slavery. They do, yeah. And, of course, it's being done because there are not enough people in the volunteer army to sign up um, to fulfill the numbers. And, and the Bush administration is not stupid. They understand if we go to a draft again, well, then there's going to be even more protest against what's going on. So we have to maintain a volunteer army. But uh, And then, of course, uh, I would mention lastly at this point... Um, Bush went on uh, maybe a week ago, and his speech acknowledged that the CIA does, CIA does have you know, black prisons, areas where they interrogate people um, who are suspected of terrorist activities. Um, that was denied, by the way, by this administration, and then it's finally admitted to. What I, my question is, where is the outrage amongst the people of the United States, amongst civil libertarians, amongst politicians and other groups to say, you can't just say no and then say, oh, yes, it exists. We're letting you know it does exist. There has to be responsibility. It's illegal. It's unconstitutional. It has now been acknowledged by the President of the United States, and no one is paying a price for breaking the law. Right, and the news media not doing their job, and they they are, instead of when Bush made this announcement last week, they should have said, so... Are you lying now, or were you lying then? <laughs> and it just, it just slides on by. Well, and part of the responsibility, 
is, is yes, the press, which, of course, uh, you know, to, to a certain degree, the major organs of the press are more dominated by corporations than ever before, which means that there's even more responsibility on the people. Um, because the politicians are worried about getting reelected, um, the corporations are worried about making money and not annoying um, partisan Supreme Court or a partisan FCC, and that means that the people have to step up, or this is what they get. And whenever people complain about, you know, Bush and Cheney and Rumsfeld and and why didn't they talk about it in this press, I go, yes, 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 it's all true, but none of this stands if the people say we won't accept this. And they write the letters, and they make the phone calls, and they file the lawsuits, yeah. and they do what is what is necessary. But if they don't do it, then it's easy to forget about it. We live in a country that is extremely rich, extremely diverse. There's a lot going on. Um, there are extremely subtle governmental and societal controls. And that brings us back to, to Phil, I think, <laughs> that Phil loved to lampoon, and he would have had a field day with what's going on now in America, he loved to lampoon in a dark but very funny way um, the control of people, whether it was by drugs like in um, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep with the, the Penfield mood organ, you just dial up whatever you feel like that day. Oh, today I'm feeling like um, Giddy Abandon. <laughs> of dial up whatever number on the Penfield Moore organ. Or today I'm feeling like self-serving anxiety and pity. And then you dial that up. In some way, on a really deep psychic level, this is what happens, I believe, in America. Not that people are evil and want to enslave others or, or, or that they want to look away from it, but they do, and they find other ways to not acknowledge the bad things that we do in in a country that still represents, I think, the best that we can offer in the way of world government. Um, Let me cut in here a minute. Uh, got a little announcement. Let yeah. people know. Uh, yeah, <laughs> this is KUCI eighty eight point nine FM in Irvine, and on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Robert Larson speaking today with Brad Schreiber. He is a author, screenwriter, film critic, literary consultant, journalist, writing teacher. <laughs> and and occasionally he lets the host of the show say a few <laughs> words, like do a station ID. I'm sorry about that last rant there, but... Uh... <laughs> no, it's all good stuff. And and yes, and we're, we're uh, talking about today, about Philip K. Dick and uh, the uh, film that's uh, recently uh, still out in the theaters now, um, is Scanner Darkly, and how that relates to the situation we're in in America now. And, and Brad, you mentioned um, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, which was made into the wonderful movie Blade Runner. Mm-hmm. And um, I think Dick, most notably in, in that book, um, asked the question, can a machine have real consciousness and feelings and a conscience? But what he was slyly slipping in there as well was, why and how do humans lose that and become robotic? Exactly. And I think that ties in with some points you were just making about where America is now and about how we can have these horrors that are just being committed in our names and people go on about their business in this very robotic manner. Yeah, uh, it's an excellent, excellent point. I mean, it's a question that's worth batting around, even if we don't come to a definitive answer, is... What makes Rick Deckard um, become more and more cold and impassive 
and you know what makes um, you know the the android characters um, that are depicted more and more human. Um, now you know people always look at something like two thousand one, a space odyssey, and they're amused at Hal, and he goes haywire and becomes very human and very protective and, and homicidal in the end because he doesn't want to lose his consciousness. And, you know, that's an extreme. But what's interesting is not so much to examine how machines are becoming more and more human. You know, we have robots that walk, and there's AI voices, and they program them with different voices, and all that's cute. But the really important thing is to explore how human beings become less and less sentient, less and less connected to their feelings, less and less willing to look at disturbing truths about how they live, or if they live a decent life, how their country uh, operates, or if their country is basically a decent country, how the rest of the world operates. And that is a, a theme that I, sh- I think is extremely important and should never be overlooked, because um, that's kind of what we're looking at, the ability to say, eh, I know bad things happen, but basically we're good, and no, we don't have to change anything. Mm-hmm. You know, that kind of self-congratulatory, hey, at least we're not all these other horrible countries. Yeah. You know, and therefore, if we slip a little bit, eh, so what? You know, I, I either don't believe it, or if it happens, I'm convinced it's negligible. And and this was even in A Scanner Darkly as well, because you see the, the, the drugged-out freaks who are messed up, to, you know, for the most part voluntarily by some drug, but then you see the the government agents and the law enforcement people who are using these people in horrible ways or 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 depriving them of civil liberties and treating them like they are mm-hmm. less than human and, and and so in a certain sense um, forfeiting their own humanity and what we think of is when we say a person acts humanely yeah and and, and I, I thought of another thing uh, that Phil brought uh, brings up and and it's more specifically about consciousness and and science cannot fully explain consciousness. I mean, we're still at that place, and I think most people get on with their lives and and accept that it's just a mystery. Then I think there are some of us who stayed up a few nights trying to figure out <laughs> what it means to be a self-reflecting, aware being, and and you know, Phil Dick ran with that and could you maybe address that a bit of why how that seems to charm some of us and why that that so much endears us to his work well i think that part of the charm i mean first of all he had an unbelievably complex mind um and uh, even beyond his vision his science fiction visions i think one of the most impressive things about him and i know there are many other people who've read more of his works than I have, but in reading maybe a dozen books and a lot of essays, um, I'm impressed by his study of religion and his embracing of, despite his phenomenal knowledge and inherent intelligence, his respect for the mystical, his respect for that which we cannot fully understand, um, and yet at the same time, uh, loving science and utilizing science in his science fiction. And I've always believed that, you know, societies fail when they embrace either science or religion. That in some ways you have to acknowledge the divine and that which is beyond your understanding, and that 
science also provides you a more civilized way of living because life is harsh. And, you know, we have E. coli in our spinach today, <laughs> you know, I just yeah, read, you yeah. know, in 20 states. Um, a lot of people think that our downfall is not going to be about nuclear war. It's going to be about the microbes getting us. Um, um, I think one of the charms of, of Phil is that he had a brilliant sense of humor, that he acknowledged being a kind of a drug taker and a risk taker. And, you know, we, I think we as a society do admire people who are rebels to a certain extent. Um, and actually, that's not just our society. It's many societies where, we, you know, like uh, you, you see a movie about people who rob banks. They're not people who are killing people. They're not people who are selling drugs to your children in the schoolyard. They're robbing banks, the big banks, and they're taking the money and they're going to go out and spend it. And there's something romantic about that. Well, I know it sounds like a leap, but I think that some of Phil's characters who have screwed up lives, who take drugs, who are being harassed by the man, et cetera, et cetera, are charming. And even if we don't live their lives, we know that sense of being caught in the bureaucracy. We know that sense of this is what the law says, and it doesn't seem to make sense, and there's no way around it, almost Kafkaesque. Well, I just I had a thought as you were saying that, that some of his characters— they weren't so much robbing banks as they were robbing from the gods in the sense of Greek mythology. And uh, who am I thinking of here? Uh, Sisyphus, uh, the one that uh, got sentenced to roll the rock for eternity. And, and uh, yeah. is that yeah? And so that it seems like that's what some of his characters and 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 he himself had experiences with that of the the whole Valus thing in his real life and and yeah. uh, just uh, okay. You want you want to peer into that world, that beyond world, that that utterly mystical, ineffable thing. Okay, here you go, but you're going to pay a little price for it. But but you're you're going to be seen as a hero to those who maybe for some reason can never go there. Or That's don't... true. That's true. You know, the funny thing is, and this is this is worthy of a whole other talk. <laughs> but the funny thing is about Phil's divine experience that was put in Vallis of whether or not, you know, he was robbed by the government and so forth and so on that broke into, um, I guess, when he was living in Berkeley in his apartment. Um, all that stuff, whether it was paranoia, whether it was drugs, or whether it was something mystical, in a way it doesn't really matter knowing the truth of what went on in his, in his mind and in his life in quote-unquote reality. And you've got to put that in quotes when you talk about Phil Dick. <laughs> yes. It doesn't matter. What matters is what he explored, the importance of his themes. And to a certain degree, there's a sense of tragedy in, in understanding that Phil may have had some sort of mental breakdown, but that there is something extremely noble in pushing the limits of human consciousness and trying to understand the divine, and trying to understand our place as human beings. And while it's tragic when someone dies before their time, or has a mental breakdown in that pursuit, the opposite is not much better, where people just kind of go on, um, like Rick Deckard, shutting down his feelings, killing those quote-unquote skin jobs in, in Blade Runner, and kind of negating his own humanity. Um, 
It's been my great pleasure to be involved in a theater production that ran last year at the Fountain Theater called What I Heard About Iraq. I think I mentioned that to you, Robert. And, and recently I was in Edinburgh, Scotland, where I'm proud to say the British production of this play about why we went into Iraq supposedly and what really has gone on there won an award, a Fringe First Award, which is given to 1% of the 1,300 theater productions at the largest arts festival in the world in Edinburgh. All right. so that was a great sense of pride. But the, but, the, but the thing I bring up here about that is that the Europeans are more connected to what is going on politically, including what's going on in America, than Americans. Um, it may be that their history, their culture, and what happens as a result of our policies seems to affect them more on a day-to-day basis than other Americans. Um, when I taught not too long ago in Mexico, I had students come up to me afterwards. Um, many of them spoke very fluent English. And they said, um, is your President Bush going to invade Iran? Hmm. Um, is your Governor Schwarzenegger going to do anything about the illegal aliens? Is he going to make it I- illegal? Is he going to send them all back to Mexico? They seem to have a real knowledge and commitment to what was going on in the world socially. And there was also a lot of political theater in Edinburgh, and I see less of that in America. It may just be a cultural thing, but um, I think it's an important thing. It's like taking your vitamins, <laughs> knowing what's going on in the world. You don't have to be obsessive. You don't have to be as obsessive as, as Robert Larson and I are, but I think it's part of being human to be connected to what's going on in the world and try and do a little something. Yeah, yeah, that that I agree with that point. Yeah, it's a good point, and I also like what you had to say earlier in the program about uh, we have to get involved, and we can't just say, well, the news media sucks and Congress are all a bunch of whores and they're bought off, and we have to do something about it. So to, as I like to end my shows on a positive <laughs> note, <laughs> uh, yeah, uh what do you think is, in addition to those couple of things you just mentioned, uh, is the best strategy now to avoid us falling further down one of those darkest Phil Dickian rabbit holes? I, I think that people have to make their individual choices about what is important to them. For example, uh, there are so many causes that are worthwhile. Um, I'm particularly concerned about the use of depleted uranium because... Once we leave Iraq, and I'm, I'm telling you, we're not going to be there forever. This is historic. You know, we, we see this in America where we go into another country, we fight until it's intolerable, and then we leave. I mean, it happened in Vietnam, and it's happened uh, in other countries as well. But, but the terrible thing for me is that depleted uranium stays in the atmosphere. It infects other people. So there are... There is a depleted uranium project where you can donate money. Um, if you're interested in global warming, um, you know, an inconvenient truth, and their website ha- have links to all these organizations where you can donate money and get involved in that cause. It is overwhelming to try and solve all the world's problems. But I think that if there's something that resonates, particularly for individual people, um, you know, if it's illegal immigration, if you're someone from Central uh, America or South America or Mexico and, and you're concerned about those rights, then that's where you should put your time. 
um, you should uh, look into those causes that you feel mean the most to you and, and, and be active in them, not in the sense where you do it every single day even, but that you have an ongoing commitment to see what can be done. So pick something and do something. Yeah, maybe, uh, maybe you want to get involved in that uh, E. coli spinach coalition, <laughs> uh, you know, to make sure that, hey, listen, I joke around, but, uh, you know, genetic engineering of food is a major issue, and it's something we have to look very carefully at, um, that if agribusiness forces the American people to start um, eating foods that are genetically engineered, that that whole thing I said earlier about the microbes winning and forget about nuclear war and forget about major terrorism, that's something that we're really going to have to be prepared for because it's extremely dangerous. Yeah. The, the science part of society, in closing, the science part of society is extremely knowledgeable. You have to embrace the divine and the religious because that's where the ethics come from. But you have to embrace the scientific because that is also in our modern world um, how we combat other problems that can't be dealt with merely through ethics or religion uh, or those kinds of things. All right, Brad, thanks a lot. Your uh, latest book, Stop the Show, A History of Insane Incidents and Absurd Accidents in the Theater. And if people want uh, to uh, get your uh, expertise on writing, they can go to... Thewritersjourney.com, and they can also email me and further these very interesting discussions that we have, uh, Robert, and I thank you very much for the opportunity to voice them. Thank you so much for being with me. Uh, Brad Schreiber, That's uh, and he, uh, thewritersjourney.com, again, uh, I'll, give you, I'll give you more of his information, and of course you can always contact me, uh, rglarson at org. You can look me up on MySpace, myspace.com. Uh, backslash out the rabbit hole so we're just about out of time here and uh, I will have next week on the program Mac White graphic novelist and uh, social uh, political critic uh, parapolitical researcher fascinating fascinating information he's uh, always an excellent guest and we got out the uh, we got uh, nonprofits for us coming right up. This is out the rabbit hole. I'm Robert Larson. I'll be with you next week, and uh, I'm going to leave you with some music from Johnny Hickman, one of the people I saw at the Cracker Camper Van Beethoven Second Annual Campout over the past weekend. And this is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, also streaming at KUCI.org.